Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Farmers are being paid to move to regenerative agriculture and timber companies are being paid by the Microsoft and Google's of the world to not cut down trees. And so these marketplaces are, are already live now. Serial entrepreneur and startup investor Josh Felser on doing well by doing good by the planet. Stay with us. Enjoy full disclosure on Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com on NPR One and on Spotify. A shout out to our radio listeners in Arlington, Virginia and in DC. Of course, in Asheville, North Carolina and now Ventura, California. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. Joining me from San Francisco is a jack of all VC trades, Josh Felser. He's a climate angel investor. He's co-founder of Freestyle Capital, co-founder of ClimateX, which sits at the intersection of technology and climate change. Uh, ClimateX's first product, Hashtag Climate, is an app that aggregates the best climate change actions from leading nonprofits and matches them with social media influencers. In a past life, uh, sir, you exited profitably from um, Spinner, which you co-founded. That was acquired by AOL for $320 million back in 1999. You also co-founded and was co-CEO of Grouper Crackle, one of the first user-powered internet video networks acquired by Sony for $65 million in 2006. Do you tap dance? Do you play the piano? I've lost my mind and I've left that all behind. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? Thanks for letting me snag you onto this. And then there's a whole other secret life you led back in 1984, <laughs> and I'm going to get to it at the very end of the episode. But I am fascinated, let me tell you, as somebody who's covered markets and has always been interested in sustainability and the like, there used to be a, a, a pretty kind of lockstep relationship, you know, an inverse relationship. Oil prices would collapse and the prospects for clean tech would collapse, like solar, recycling, uh, commodity prices would collapse. Something was very different this time around in that oil has had a tumultuous couple of years. You saw such a glut during the worst of the pandemic. And yet clean tech, be it solar, wind, uh, geothermal, uh, the state of electric cars, Tesla being the most valuable car maker on the planet, uh, that has kind of had escape velocity. Where, where are we at right now? I think the world has awakened and, and to the to this thing called climate change, and and it was this amorphous, you know, model that predicted that maybe the future would be bad, and you know, people would hear about you know two degree increase in in uh, you know temperature and the impact of that that might it might affect us all. But now it's become real. Like we're seeing the impact. We're seeing you know, in California, the impact of the wildfires. We're seeing the impact in coastal communities of more frequent and more powerful hurricanes. We're seeing the impact of drought. All of this, I think, has has awakened us as, you know, consumers. But more importantly, and I think this is the big difference, is that businesses have have really woken up and on their own are already taking steps to become more carbon neutral. And I think that that is the game changer. I mean, I'm looking at ExxonMobil this year, which was booted from the Dow Jones Industrial Average. It would have been unthinkable, kind of, you know, the 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 leading um, progeny of Standard Oil and John Rockefeller and everything. And these guys, you can understand from a finance perspective, they are moving mountains to protect their dividend. 
Uh, they've had to scrap share buybacks. They're cutting all sorts of capital projects and only very incrementally embracing a carbon-constrained future. I mean, they're, you know, you look at ExxonMobil, you look at the Keystone Pipeline, they're like, we hope to go to all renewables in the extraction of oil. I mean, it's, it's almost, um, you know, it's trolling. Uh, people out there who are realizing there are companies out there that, as you realize in Silicon Valley, that they want to be carbon neutral uh, within ten or fifteen years. It's a whole different universe. Well, I you know I don't know yet whether oil companies are the the modern day you know tobacco companies or whether they truly want to change. You know, I I haven't figured that out yet. I haven't. Fig- I'm, I'm I see Exxon and Shell really jumping in with their dollars funding kind of the next generation of of climate you know of, of climate change battling startup startups but i don't i don't yet know you know they have trillions of dollars in in reserves under the ground that are really defining their their company's future success and so i'm watching this i don't know uh i don't know yet where they will fall out so i want to be I, I don't want to throw them into the tobacco camp just yet but I can't throw them in into the you know into the altruistic, you know, climate battling company of the future. But why shouldn't they be agnostic if the ultimate deliverable is BTUs, right? Whether you get it, so you have reserves in the ground and everything. But these guys have gone upstream, downstream. They've done natural gas. They have wind farms. Is that all kind of window dressing? To my mind, you know, it is a it is a question of innovate or die. Look where. Apple was in the late 90s versus where it is today, right? Look at, you know, they, it, it's cliche, but they talk about the buggy whip maker in the early 20th century, never seeing the Model T. I understand that it is reflexive for uh, disruptors and disruptive people and change agents to say that the incumbents are not going to be the ones leading the future. I mean, look at Tesla versus GM. Look at Tesla versus Toyota. So... um I don't want to. I think if we can, if we focus too much on the oil companies, I think we'll we'll miss we'll miss what you know what the next wave of company looks like that's going to really make an impact on climate, and and um, and so I, I don't want to spend. I, we can talk about it if you want, but I really think that no, you know what? I'm going to use this as a transition to cow gas. Let's go that way, <laughs> right? Oh Mutrol, which is a portfolio investment that you guys are in, because one stat really kind of stabbed me in the middle of the eyes is that livestock globally are responsible for 15% of greenhouse gases, and we know that that methane is especially disruptive. This is this is to your mind low hanging fruit to be able to neutralize the severity of of cows' uh, climate impact. So. <sighs> There is this, there's, there's a purity in much of the mm. climate movement, especially, you know, coming and bubbling up through nonprofits. But what I think many of us, you know, I'm not a purist, I'm a practical, you know, investor. And I think what many of us have seen is that we're not going to stop people from eating red meat around the world. It's too ingrained in, in the economies of both the developing world and the developed world. And I, but what we can do is go after the the one of one of the root causes of climate change, you know, within the animal community, and that's try, you know, convincing these animals to to really, if I can put it, you know, crassly, fart less. <laughs> we want them to emit, you know, less less methane. And Mutrol is is a 
Yeah, they, they, they do many things, but one of the things they're, they're focused on today is a citrus and garlic additive. Doesn't change the taste of the meat, doesn't affect longevity of the cow, but it does reduce, reduce methane by, by 30%. And that will have a profound impact on what we think of as, you know, one of the great producers of gases in the world. I think we can really make effect change by not just taking this, like all the cattle removed from the earth as the only solution. There are other solutions that we can have, that we can execute on to have a greater impact now versus waiting. This says on the site of Mutra, which is a Swiss company, right? A Swiss agritech yes. company. Despite the wonderful job cows do for us, they are the largest source of methane emissions in the world. A cow naturally produces around 500 liters of methane a day, which equates on average to three to four tons of CO2 per year. Uh, the average cow produces more CO2 per year than five average cars. It kind of begs the question, and you know, I was thinking about this, and I'm sure you did as well, the first time you bit into an Impossible Burger. I was like, wow, they really figured it out. This is huge. And you saw, you know, uh, last year, you know, Impossible wasn't publicly traded, but there was a huge run-up in anything that had to do with kind of laboratory burgers. You know, back in the day, these things tasted like grout or something that you'd use to fill a pothole in your driveway. <laughs> they were very crunchy and beany, and you talk about kind of methane-inducing. But why not that kind of the laboratory version of this where you can control for so many other things from cholesterol to heavy metals to uh, nutrient everything, and, and, and then re reduce the suffering of all these animals and, and factory farming where I, I believe, Josh, it's been a race to the bottom. Uh, you know, they want corn because it helps the cow fatty up and marble up. And there's a reason why they're not using garlic and citrus peels or, or making all these, these cows grass-fed because there's a voracious U.S. and global emerging demand for beef. Correct. And so I think instead of fighting an unwinnable war in the near term, I think we have to try and figure out solutions that, that don't require the dramatic behavior change that we thought might happen and actually start changing things. You know, some things can be dramatic. You know, we have the governor of our, of our state of California who did mandate that no, you know, no more gas and diesel cars will be sold after, I think it's 2035. But when it comes to, to what we eat, it, it's, just, it's just not realistic, right, to expect the whole world to cease eating red meat. In any time, in any of the futures that I see, and so why not fund companies like Control who are attacking a big, a, a huge part of the problem, and and I think can do it successfully with with a minimal behavior change. Josh, do you ever stay up at night uh, worrying about plastic like I do? I got to just drive on the highways and see it strewn throughout trees. I mean, when I was in New York. There were some plastic bags I take the train that were in the same tree for eight, nine years. You take your kids to the beach, you look at the state of developing economies and our oceans, and you uh, recent coverage about how much oil production goes into the production of single-use plastics. Is that is that something that you guys have taken up? I mean, I think about I I, I stay awake for lots of reasons, and and that's certainly that's certainly one of them, and and because it's so complex, right? So. There have been, if you go, if you search for paper or plastic on the internet, you're going to see right. many different answers. And it's not the obvious answer, right? The obvious answer is not necessarily to remove plastic bags from markets, right? It, they're actually probably, and I'll get shot for this, less, less, they're probably less sustainable 
paper is probably less sustainable than plastic, right? In terms of its impact on the earth. And so it's, it's, it's a complex, you know, one thing I've learned in the, in the last, you know, three or four months that I've really been focusing on this full time is that it's complex. And, and the, what I knew going into this is as I kind of immerse myself into the, into the details of climate change, I kind of had, I had impressions that were not always the most accurate. And this is one of them, paper, plastic, and, and I think we just need, we need to dig in more and not necessarily take on the assumptions of past generations. Right, but aren't you, aren't you very mindful of methane spewing landfills? Yes. The fact that it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, we are, you know, a disposable cup type society. I mean, you know, I was at many birthday parties when I was a kid, and all of those plastic forks are in a landfill somewhere, hopefully, if they're not in, in, in the Atlantic or somewhere off the coast of Miami or something like that, that this stuff, generationally, yeah. it sits around. It might be a, a, a big, uh, you know, a, a, a hill or an eyesore, but even worse, we know that methane is a particularly destructive greenhouse gas. We know that there's an element of kind of private profit and socialized risk, whatever they call externality in economics, that companies profited from selling these things and that they didn't control the life cycle of the product. And you talk about the life cycle is methane and CO2 and something that not just the, the user of that fork in 1983, but generations down the line will have to contend with. So I, so you asked about what keeps me up at night. And I'll say that it's a version of what you said. <clears throat> and especially during COVID, we're all ordering in way too much. Um, I am kept up by all of these containers that have a single use. Some of them are recyclable, most of them are not. And um, it's, not it's not sustainable in, in so many ways. How do we, so I, yes, that's an area that I am really focused on and trying to find a more, a better solution, right? How many times do you order a week? Several times a week now in the pandemic. And most of the most of the containers you're using are not recyclable. Yeah, and they call they, it wish cycling. You know, you might be right. able to put a number six, number seven, uh, number five in that container. Whole Foods might accept it, but we understand through all the coverage, especially since China stopped accepting this stuff, that it's not ultimately recycled. Right. A lot of times, it'll end up as a park bench, or it'll be incinerated in in in, in Thailand or Vietnam. So that that so that's an that's an area of profound, we need profound change in, in how, in these single use, you know, products that are really not recyclable. We need profound change there. We can't, you know, you, I've seen the landfill in Florida. It's, it's the tall, I think it's the tallest, yeah, right. highest elevation in Florida. Sure. So, right. It's disgusting. You smell it miles and miles away. It's surrounded by vultures, which Vultures probably are doing a good job there, you know, <laughs> breaking down whatever's in there. But, you know, that's not sustainable. It's not, we can't, we can't keep, you know, we can't send to China. We have to deal with it ourselves. And there is no good solution at the moment. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Josh Felser, serial founder, tech and climate investor. Uh, he is co-founder of Climate X, which oversees the hashtag climate, an app that aggregates the best climate change actions from leading nonprofits and matches them with social media influencers. I, I see that you've partnered with the NBA, Guns N' Roses, uh, Al Gore, Evan Williams, and many others. You're also a board member uh, on, at Duke's Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. I have to ask you, sir, 
Um, you're there in the Republic of California. I've read that you know it is. If it were to be a country unto itself, it'd be the sixth biggest economy on the planet. Yes. So yes. it's and quite a proving ground for moving these things, especially when you have political unanimity and a governor who's forward thinking and climate legislation. Uh, it, it 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 it's kind of it sets an example maybe for the rest of the country. Well, you know, there are things that the governor can do with the stroke of a pen, and I'm excited to see what he does next. Of course, I would love to see, you know, a low methane beef regulation that appears in California, right? I, I, it, it will move the needle. You know, this, this decree, you know, no more gas and diesel cars sold after 2035. That's a huge change. Think about the impact on just California of that. Sure. On the sure. automobile companies. I mean, it, think of all the, and this is where I get excited, right? Think of all the infrastructure needed to make, to support that change and all of the opportunities for entrepreneurs and investors to be part of this, of this battle against climate change. Just from this one rule that we are going to, we're going to be living under in, in, in California. It's a massive time. I mean, it's the greatest, and climate change is the greatest challenge of our generation, but it also may be the, the most exciting financial, you know, direction for us. It, it's, it brings all that together. And California is kind of the epicenter of it. What would underpin that? What would be, I mean, you know, the Fed sets interest rates. There are certain ways of centrally planning uh, investment and animal spirits. I've often talked with people, either market-based people or, or uh, you know, classical liberal uh, folks or free market types. Would it be setting a price on carbon or, or taxing the use of fossil fuels that would ultimately sluice investment and the rest of the kind of the free market in the direction of clean tech? I mean, it's already happening, but 100%. If and we, we really, we need to, we need to assign the cost of carbon to all the products that are creating it. We have to do that, right? And all the processes. We, but even if, even if that takes a while, which it may, there still is a compelling and massive market that's exciting both entrepreneurs and investors. I mean, it's, it's not carbon, you know, carbon accounting, which is a huge area of focus for many of us in this space, right? Carbon accounting. And all that, all that means is, is where companies are now starting to assess their, their footprints, their carbon footprints. And, and that's the first step for them to make real change, real change to reduce their carbon footprints. Part of, their, part of that, you know, right now is, I think mostly they're doing it because there's a carrot there, right? They can actually tell their, their institutional investors, the consumers of their products, that they are, car they are climate friendly, right? That's, that's the carrot. There needs to be a stick also to push this along. And the stick is, hey, if you don't do it, you're going to pay more. Your products are going to cost you more to make. And I think that having the carrot and the stick at the same time with climate is going to really speed things up. Josh, what is uh, a standing tree worth in the year 2021? I think about this a lot in that all these patches of, of area and creeping suburbanization, or you go back to our South Florida and elements that were uninterrupted as you would get close to the Everglades have been mowed down for, you know, stucco roof developments with, with fake lakes in the middle and everything. I'm reading increasingly and I'm hearing whispers that be it the Nature Conservancy or or cold-eyed agriculture investors realize that there is money to be made. There's opportunity in banking land for land's sake, soil for, for soil's sake. 
uncut trees for carbon capture's sake. So it's funny you say that because I haven't even told you, you know, I, I've, I've only shared one company that I'm working with, but, but what you just said is, is a, one of the many areas of focus for me as an investor. And I actually have already invested in two companies that are, that are really engineering um, uh, changes in both forestry and agriculture. And one of them pays farmers to move to regenerative ag. That company is called Nori. And, uh, and then the other is, is paying timber companies to not cut down trees. And that company is called Sylvia Terra. I'm only making tiny investments in these companies, but I'm doing it as much to really learn and, and be part of their journeys than anything else. Uh, and then there's another company that I haven't invested in, but is also doing great work called Drone Seed. And it's just, it's, it's a, much, a much more efficient and effective way to scale creating new forests, reforestation. And so I, there, there are some good movements in these areas to both uh, take what has been a, a problem in the climate industry and turn it into a solution. Again, if we have, I won't, this, this show doesn't have enough time for me to go into regenerative ag, but. Oh, I'll bring you back. Trust you, me. Um, it reminds <laughs> me of the lyric. It reminds me of the lyric in the Midnight Oil song, Blue Sky Mine. And nothing's as precious as a hole in the ground. Yeah, time was you'd see land and you'd develop it or you'd see these timber trusts and they'd be valued as real estate investment trusts because the potential for uh, housing or strip malls and the like. But I am increasingly hearing, and I'm not as well read on it as I should be, that you can convince landowners that that really there's more to be made in you know treating the land as a bank, as a store of value, whether it's the uh, the fertility of the soil over time. You know they're not making more of this stuff. Uh, whether it's the wood and uninterrupted and and carbon credits. If you have this conversation with a median landowner right now, how would it go? Like, how would you even get a person who in the past has looked at it in terms of timber, uh, uh, fruits, other yields, you know, hunting access on the property to say, listen, there's actually a, you can do good and do well by the land. Well, the good news is that I don't have to, I don't have to come up with that number, but there are marketplaces whose sole mission in life is to do exactly what you say. And it's a negotiation, right? So you know, they're, um, companies like Google and Microsoft are, are certainly pushing to change their core processes to move to carbon neutrality. That's going to take a while. And, and maybe they'll never get there fully, but they'll get close. And the, the way that they'll be able to say they're neutral is for what they can't do on their own, they'll buy offsets. And those offsets will appear in marketplaces where there are farmers are being paid to move to regenerative agriculture and timber companies are being paid by the Microsoft and Google's of the world to not cut down trees. And so these marketplaces are, are already live now. I mean, you could go and, and it's exciting to see that the market will set, will decide what a tree is worth, right? And what is a, you know, right? there's a little, is that, is that equity? I have to ask you, and I, you know, maybe this is a bit of a cul-de-sac. Is that equitable? An enormous Fortune 100 company doesn't actually have to cap its smokestacks or carbon thing. As long as it buys offsets, this stuff is fungible. You know, don't worry about it. Somebody's gonna, uh, uh, somebody's gonna find that valuable. It reminds me of a you know wealthy plantation owner in you know 1861, 1862 South Carolina paying other people to go to war for him. Okay, that sounds terrible. I'm not even gonna touch that. 
that that <laughs> comparison. But I will say that these companies are being called to task to change their core processes. That we everyone knows, like buying offsets is only is only is only going to be a viable path if those same companies are doing everything they can to to move to neutrality by changing their core processes by by you know manufacturing their goods with suppliers who are using renewable energy you know that you can't offsets are covered so in the paris agreement again another topic we don't want to cover fully today in the paris agreement it distinguishes between offsets and really fundamentally changing the way that you execute your business and so they won't be allowed as part of the paris agreement which which really if you think about it it's behavior of consumers companies the companies roll up into states and the states roll up into countries and the countries have made commitments fortunately you know the us is a day away from rejoining the paris agreement um, and those commitments to keep the earth from warming more than two degrees those commitments only allow for a portion of the effort to be offsets versus changing the core Got the it. core of what a company does. So if I if I'm about to buy a honking five thousand dollar eighteen hour flight on Singapore Airlines with all the bells and whistles and belch you know belch kerosene <laughs> and jet fuel and and as much carbon as you want on that trip, but I check the box that lets me buy a fifty dollar carbon offset, that company should be held to account, right? Is to say, no, you need to ultimately cap your own emissions. You need to do more on on uh, sustainable supplies and everything that you do in the continuum. You can't just foist it off onto this checkbox of, of <laughs> some people optionally paying for something. Well, you, you actually, Robin, when you when you took that flight, should be held to task as well, right? I mean, you're you're choosing to fly, you know, in a class of service that is is per capita you know, contributing a lot more than the person in coach, right? So you, so you can think about it that way. You know, there is, um, wow, there's a, there, are, there are a ton of companies trying to figure out everything from, you know, hydrogen and dirigibles, you know, to electric planes trying to figure out that problem, you know, for the airlines. There's, there, is a, there is an opportunity there. It's not something that's going to happen in the near future. But I think, you know, airlines have to figure this out, have to change their core processes. They can't buy the offset themselves, you know, or thrust it on their consumers for much longer. They're going to have to change how they do business. Josh, we are at a, we are at a you know, critical, um, you know, disruption in the fracking era since I think George W. Bush left office. You've seen an unbelievable revolution in uh, United States as a producer of of crude and related liquids and natural gas, which is almost in some states become too cheap to meter. And uh, the incremental power plant that's now fired up, on the margin, it seems to make most sense to open up a, a nat gas fired plant for the next, whatever, 30, 40 years, not a coal fired plant. Do you see that as kind of a mezzanine, kind of a stepping stone technology? Or do you believe that power plants, which after all are enormous emitters, enormously responsible for uh, the carbon imprint on the planet, that they should wholeheartedly be right now going into uh, renewables, uh, solar, wind. I mean, in solar in California and Arizona, in some parts, has really reached a tipping point in terms of cost and the, uh, the, uh, the, the, you know, the cost of the silicon, the cost of the technology, the scalability. We have, um, in the spring and the fall in California, we have a surplus of energy 
and we we sell that energy to places like Arizona. So we're here, right? We we the only thing I mean I, I'm gonna overly simplify I'm gonna oversimplify this. We we need to develop more cost-effective solutions to, for storage, but the generation is we're we're getting close. And you know, as you mentioned at the beginning of your of your opening, like you know, we're at about two cents or so for renewable energy, you know, cost, and that compares to roughly four cents for you know for coal and gas. And so we're already below. And the the challenge is to really is to really spend. The energy, I'm going to use that word again, <clears throat> to develop better and cheaper storage solutions. And there are a ton of companies focused on that. You know, one of them is Tesla. Yeah. So I want to see like in the Republic of the Bay Area, where people are super woke to these things, where I don't know if you've had a desire to go off the grid or if the grid itself, the power companies out there are saying that we can centralize this and have the arrays, the solar arrays in the desert or something. We could have the storage kind of out of sight, out of mind. In your community of, of venture investors and, you know, back in the hills, let's say you go up in, what is it, Tiburon or, or other parts or, or Russian Hill, are people leaving the grid and going solar? Is there kind of this move toward, uh, you know, power self-determination? So I think there are a couple of steps to it. So one of the steps is, um, is so I get all my energy from a company called Marin Clean Energy. Uh, and it, it's a, it's administered by PG&E, but it's a local source of renewable energy. And so all my energy comes from MCE. However, I am in the middle of putting Tesla power walls and Tesla solar cells on my roof. And when I do that, I will be what people call an island, right? I'll, and, and right now, utilities don't always love islands because I'm gonna be more self-sufficient with my energy. But I'm gonna have. I'm gonna be more self-sufficient. I'm not gonna pump my uh, my energy back on the grid. I'm gonna use it, you know, to power my my home and charge my car. And so that will be a big change for me. And the market not only is it interesting, you know, it's worthwhile financially for me to do this. But there are new hardware options that are making it really interesting in the home. There's a company that I did not. Do tell, yeah, tell yeah. me, tell me. Yes. There are two companies that I'm, I'm installing, whose products I'm installing in my home, and I'm not an investor in either. Uh, one is called mm -hmm. Span, and Span is a smart, it's a smart panel, right? So it, it takes your old, dumb, you know, circuit board that lives, you know, in your garage, sometimes in your, you know, some in your home, and it, and it, it turns it into a software dashboard kind of experience where you can actually wow. control and understand which of your appliances, your, your EV, what's, what is using the most energy and what can be throttled or slowed down. And it puts all that in a neat package and it's, a, it's, it's not, you know, it's new. So it's, I'm, I'm happy to be an early adopter. But I'm really excited to see what SPAN can do for my energy efficiency. And the second product is called uh, Osiaco. I think it's O-S-S-I-A-C-O. And that is a bi-directional inverter. And a what that means is that it's a car to grid. So I can actually turn my car battery into, right, into a source of power. And if you think about that, my, I happen to go to Tesla. My Tesla battery is a 90 kilowatt hour battery. My, um, 
my Powerwall battery is a 13 and a half kilowatt hour battery. So think about that. Think about the difference in size. So why wouldn't I be using my Tesla battery as a source of power for my home? Right. So, so, wow. so especially out here with, as a backup source, because we have, you know, all these rolling blackouts in California. And I, so I think that's kind of, I think we're starting to see a collection of, uh, of, of hardware and software solutions that kind of allow us to start making some headway, you know, in this renewable energy space. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Freestyle Capital's Josh Felser. He is a tech and climate investor joining us from San Francisco. I got to ask you about Tesla because I'm sure you get buttonholed about this. If we were having cocktail parties during the pandemic, it is the most talked about at the very least stock or, or tech phenom of our times in that this is a car company worth $800 billion, uh, more than all the other major automakers combined. Elon Musk toggles in and out of being the wealthiest person on the planet. Now, if he had walked to you humbly in the mid-aughts and said, you know, I got this great idea, Josh. Listen, <laughs> hit me out, hit me out. We got this boxer coming out. You would have, I mean, I don't understand. I, at some point, at some point in 2012, Josh, or 2013, there was a Consumer Reports review of the Model S. Something, some real headline-grabbing thing that it said, it was the best car we have ever tested. And he, in fact, put out a press release saying, and did you also mention that, you know, it was so safe that it broke your safety equipment. And that, I think that gambit to not have people settle for kind of an old Geo Metro or, or you know, rinky-dinky uh, fuel-efficient car, but to have something that actually had product lust and desirability. And, you know, my brother got a Model 3, and it's all he would talk about. And, and next thing you know, these guys are three, four years ahead of all of the incumbent, you know, internal combustion engine automakers. And this is a company that's about to devour the world. Could it literally set the stage? Could it be the most impactful company? You're talking about it from solar panels on the roof. You're talking about it from battery packs, the car in your garage. Is it that big a phenom? I think it, I think it already is the most important company in the climate change world. I mean, I think it already is. It's, it's, you know, he and his companies have raised awareness, both, you know, both, you know, at Tesla, Solar City, and, and in ways that, that we've all been waiting for. Like this, this, in right. a way, Tesla is, is, the, is the, the, both the sign that there's, a, there's an exciting world here for us as consumers and as investors, right? Those two worlds have come together under this name Tesla. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. For, so I see it as Tesla's paving the way for everyone else to one, that you can build a mass market um, company that happens to really battle climate change and make a ton of money doing it. There's no reason why, you know, doing good and battling climate change has to be separate from actually building the next generation of multi-billion dollar company. I got I to gotta ask though, why, if this was so easy, they say, put, put the green considerations aside. This is a better mousetrap, right? You have a fraction of the moving parts that an internal combustion engine does. You know, we had an investor on who describes it as a smart car versus a dumb car, like smartphone versus the old flip phone or the, you know, the, the, the Nokia brick. If that was there, if people knew that you could just make a battery board at the bottom and have a frunk and have sure. a smarter thing, why didn't anybody else attempt it? Why was this something? It's like, did he, did he have the proprietary clue that this was a smarter way to build the car? You know, nine decades into 
the mass production of the car? Well, I mean, I, you, I think that if you if you tracked the, the Tesla story, it was unbelievably hard. It, it was so hard, he almost lost the company. So I, I, I think what I would say is that he, you know, the best, the greatest entrepreneurs, you know, Elon, uh, Jobs, you know, Gates, especially if you look at what Jobs went through, they see things earlier than we do and they just don't give up and they are relentless. And so I think that's, when I look at the story of Tesla, given it's like high highs and low lows, you, it's led by, you know, by a revolutionary who just never gave up. And when everybody else, probably other people, people were saying that he should, you know, sell, sell Tesla to GM or Ford. And, you know, there's no way he would ever do that. So where do you think that this is going to become a true mass market industry standard? I mean, is it is the are, are is the price point something like twenty five thousand dollars? Is there a, is there a range point and price point that you think is a true tipping point for mass adoptability of this? Is it like you know five hundred mile range and twenty five thousand dollar car or thirty thousand dollar car? I I, don't, I think we're already there. I don't think I don't think the cost. I mean the the cost of an electric car especially if you if you factor in the cost of gas we're already here it's just i think it's become more of a behavior change challenge is that people you know are used to their gas cars they like the way they sound they trust them and so it's incumbent on the industry to continue to remind to let people know that these cars are many times safer you have all the the range that you need for pretty much everything you do and I think that's the focus is like really affecting this behavior change versus, you know, a cost, you know, financially we're there, you know, you can finance it as you need to. The costs are low enough now. There are options in, in every, in every size passenger vehicle, except shockingly, because I'm in the market for one, I could not find a pickup truck that was a plug-in hybrid. It doesn't, it mm. doesn't exist. Right. So just interesting to think about that. We're pick up that world is still behind the passenger car world. But again, I think we're here. We're here that we're, we've we've delivered. And now we just need to change people's minds. Josh, I got to ask you, you know, and I'm going to take you in a hard turn right now. Thirty one hundred miles away <laughs> from San Francisco is Miami, which we both know and love and hate. And it has increasingly been bandied about as Silicon Valley 2.0. There have been a handful of headlines. I know that Everybody's been calling you lately to, you know, as you've had a foot in Miami and you had a foot in uh, the Bay Area to talk about it. Is it indeed possible now that we're all working from home and land is freely available that Miami truly has a shot at becoming kind of, you know, startup Valley 2.0? So there's taking advantage, like there's building a distributed workforce hub and then there's building a tech hub and they're very different. So I think Miami as a distributed workforce Hub for especially for people who are wealthy uh, is that's already happening. And the challenge, though, and the reason I said wealthy is because you and I both know. Um, I'm, I, I I don't know if I have a chance to talk about your book, but but I read it. Oh yes, right. And so Hotel Scarface. Uh, <laughs> well, it, it's a long conversation, which maybe I'll come back for also. But you know we. Miami from November to April is maybe the best weather in America, right? It, it's, 
exciting and vibrant. Come the end of April, you're, it's a whole, it's a totally different world. It is a world where people are, are trying to go from indoor, from vehicle to an indoor space as quickly as they possibly can, right? No one, out, being outside in Miami during the summer is like, is like walking through hell. Oh, I remember it. Your shirt sticks to you, the seatbelt, the metal part of the seatbelt burns you as you get <laughs> exactly. in, right? The car is baking. People are terrified of leaving uh, carbonated beverages in the car. But I, you know, I thought all of this stuff was put to rest when Amazon, for its second headquarters, you know, and Jeff Bezos went to Palmetto. He was raised mostly in Miami. He, uh, he really dismissed Florida. You would think there'd be a lot of pluses in South Florida, the cost, uh, the livability, the cost of living, but there aren't certain raw ingredients there, namely uh, the, the the educated STEM population, right? The permanence, the the presence of major research universities. Right. So how is right. this leap of faith suddenly happening? Because a handful of wealthy investors and VCs are buying very expensive homes and condos there. And they get to live there during the best time of the year and get the F out during the times and both, you know, from the summer to the hurricane season, right? It's not, you listed all the reasons. There are other reasons why Miami is challenging. Reasons that, that make Miami, you know, lovable by me. I grew up there and, and probably by you. And, and we have, you and I have a bunch of mutual friends who live there. Uh, I think Billy Corbin's been on the show before. Sure. Miami has a culture that defines it. And, and I love the culture. I grew up with the culture. And it's what makes Miami interesting to me. It also is a culture that I think will be very challenging for people coming from Silicon Valley. You know, it is a, you know, the Cuban and Caribbean culture there. Again, the music, the food, the, the vibe. It's part, for me, what makes Miami so unique in this country. But I think it also comes with, um, you know, Miami is not known for being a, an on-time place. It's not, right. it's not known for being outside of real estate, which is you know, short-term and transactional. It's not known for being a long-term, you know, uh, having a long-term point of view on changing the earth, right? It's just not, you know, in the valley we have, you know. Oh, and speaking, speaking of which now, I mean, you can go five, six miles inland in Miami and you'll see water gurgle up in Doral even on, on sunny days, right? When there's a full moon or a king moon. I mean, to, to bring it back to your conversation about climate, uh, yes, wealthy people can come in and live in in the condo canyons way up or, or uh, uh, you know, reinforce things or live in, in, you know, Indian Creek, I think, frankly, is very imperiled. <laughs> That's the amazing thing. The wealthiest yeah. zip codes in Miami are some of the ones that would be first flooded. And I think that's that's a fascinating thing to see Elon Musk tweet that he's had a constructive exchange with South Florida lawmakers and we can bore tunnels there. Well, you, you can't really bore tunnels. It's the place is uh, at and below sea level. I, you know, I was talking to a friend who uh, who works at uh, Breakthrough Energy. Um, sure, his name is Matt, and and Matt was like, you know, I have this data that shows that that by 2050, South Florida, Miami, will probably experience, unless we you know really change the trajectory we're on, will experience a hundred days a year of sunny. What's the terminology used? Uh, of of sunny day flooding. Think about that. Think about that. A hundred days a year. A hundred days a year. I think we're already at fifteen. I think we're roughly at fifteen. 
but 100 days a year. But just quickly, there isn't there isn't a hydrological fix to that. It's not a matter of pumping that back out or building more canals or anything. That that's that's kind of it. That's anything. I haven't heard because because the most of the ground is porous. I have not heard of any solution that can deal with you know a, a with a uh, with the porous challenge of Miami. I have not heard a solution to deal with that. And yet, some of the smartest money in the United States is snapping up you know, 15, 20, $30 million housing in the year 2021. Yeah, but, you know, the way that, again, because we're talking about 2050 and, you know, probably the, the buyers, sure. the developers of the coastal real estate, the buyers of the coastal homes, they'll be smart enough to sell before, before it's that next buyer that's going to have to deal with it. So you're right. Smart money is buying it out and smart money will sell. And then some dumb money will take it over. And that, and those folks will be the ones most impacted by it. By climate change. Josh Felser, in the in the eight or nine minutes or so I have left with you, I'd be irresponsible if I didn't ask you about your experience at the late great hotel mutiny as a, you know, it sounds like an 80s screenplay or maybe a you know penthouse forum letter or something. But tell me, you were a valet at the mutiny when in 1984? Wow, I was. I was. And it's funny, you know, and you didn't you did not ask me to do this, but I'm gonna do it anyway. I when I was reading Hotel Scarface, right? Your book. And I was, it, it, mm. I'm one of the, what other than, you know, outside of the, the drug community, the drug ecosystem, I am one of the few people that really had experiences at mutiny that, that your book reminded me of. And, you know, I was a Valley Parker there. I got, I got the job there. I didn't know how to drive a stick shift. And so I would kind of, I would hop in a car and I would, I would, try and keep it in first gear and then sneak around the back and learn how to drive a stick shift while I was actually working as a Valley Parker. And you know, the cars that were there, you know, Ferraris and Lamborghinis and you know, all the fanciest cars. And one night um, I pulled up in, a, in one of those cars and a man walks out and he's wearing all white, all white suit. He's got a white fedora. He has a woman on each arm. I remember this as if it was yesterday because I was a pretty naive kid. I didn't even know what the mutiny was about when I got the job there. I just knew that people made a lot of money, <laughs> right? And so I, I'm watching this guy come out of the club, out of the hotel, and he's waiting for his car, and he's fumbling in his in his jacket for something, and and this something falls out, and it hits the ground, and it just shatters. And I will tell you, within like two seconds, the entire the whole the whole area that was filled with people, those people jumped to the ground, and their noses were to the to the dirt and glass, like the dirt and the glass on the floor. And they, oh and they were hoovering up the cocaine that came out of that vial. And I remember seeing that, I'm like, what are they doing? Like, what, what is that? Like, and then I was like, oh yeah, it's that. And it stayed with me all these years. And when I was reading your book, I'm like, oh, that's just table stakes, you know, for what you wrote about. Oh my, I wonder if that was Rudy Redbeard, the guy in the white suit and the white fedora who uh, people would kneel down before him to get a quaalude at the club. and. <laughs> You know, things would fall in between the floorboards. I got to ask, what is the biggest tip you ever got? Well, I mean, I, I had, um, let's see, I didn't disclose it in my uh, tax filings back then. Um, but oh, it's all cash. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, the biggest tip I got, I think there was a guy that came out and it was a hundred bucks, a hundred dollar bill. And um, and he, I remember he uh, he was the least, You if you looked at him, you would not think that he was involved in the drug trade. He was like kind of disheveled and, and he had, you know, he wasn't wearing his usual clothing, but he gave me a hundred dollar tip. And he said to me, I remember saying him saying this to me, 
said, don't judge a book by its cover. Hmm. I don't really know what that, I mean, wow. I'm not, I, there's the obvious meaning, but I have a feeling he meant something else that I was supposed to understand at the time. And I never, I never have. How long did you work at the mutiny? Um, so I was there, I was there for, I think about um, six weeks in the Valley Parker. And uh, the guy who, who managed all of us, he was kind of like a, like a, uh, he looked like a bit of a troll and he had like, I could visualize him. He had this like pear shaped body and, and he had uh, orange hair uh, and he saw me pull up in a, a Lamborghini and, and the car was literally like, eh, eh, you know, it's just it pulling up in fits and starts. And, and he, he, I got out of the car and he said, listen, you're done. You're done here. You're demoted to security. Here's a chair. Go, go out into the back lot and you just sit there and make sure none of the cars are stolen or vandalized. So I did that for two weeks. It was really boring. It's like quit. You faked being a valet with all of these, you know, $100,000 vehicles back then driven by dangerous hitmen and drug dealers. I mean, talk about fake it till you make it. They were so high, they didn't care. <laughs> and was that while you were in college? Is that why you went to, to Duke? <laughs> Wait, I want to understand the why there. <laughs> no, I want to no, I'm not trying to get you retroactively banned or anything. I'm just trying to get in the head of a, a visionary, a climate visionary, you know, the 40-year uh, journey of Josh Felser from so the, the moral and ethical decrepitude of South Florida to where we are today. It's something that I think about a lot. I mean, Jeff Bezos, after all, he went to high school just a few miles away from the mutiny at, at you know, um, Pinecrest. He, he did Palmetto. He went to Palmetto. 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 Right? Yeah. And so he was, this is a funny story about Jeff. So Jeff went, it was the same year as all of my friends. All, I, I went to Ransom, but most of my uh -huh. friends went to Palmetto with Jeff, same grade. And they all knew him. And, and the funny thing was that he, you know, he was, he was a very smart kid even in, in high school, but, but he was, uh, he was not the valedictorian of his class. His best friend was. And so it's, well, we, you know, now you look back and like, I wonder, and I think, I don't know, but I think that somehow his best friend from high school is still, or was, certainly worked with Amazon for a while and maybe is still there. But yeah, so, so yeah, so Jeff was, uh, went to school with all my friends. I, you know, when he, when he started Amazon, I was, um, I forget what year he did that. I moved out here in 97 and- wow. And, uh, and I remember my friends were saying like, hey, did you ever meet him? And just to close this loop, I think we, we at my company, Spinner, we did, we were the first to ever do a deal um, where, with Amazon, where you could actually buy on a CD the music that you were listening to online. <laughs> right, think about that. It was the first Think of its kind, that. right? First of its kind. You could actually listen to music on our service and then push a button and then a CD would be shipped from Amazon to your home. Wow. And, and Amazon paid us an, an advance of $250,000. That was the deal. Now, did you ever imagine this guy would be lording over a $1.5 trillion company where kind of profit is no object? And it just shows you, as you said earlier, the visionaries are the ones that aren't going to be stopped. I mean, uh, this guy went through enormous turmoil and disruption in dot-com 1.0. Had to lay off a ton of people. I hear people complain about Whole Foods left and right right now, which Amazon paid $14 billion in cash for. But that's never going to move the needle on this enormous multinational behemoth. It's a logistics company. It's a, you know, 
it's a cloud company. It's a media company. Uh, but I digress as I normally do, sir. Uh, in the minute or two I have left with you, give me your thoughts on the new administration coming in and how that can be an impetus for the kinds of investments you're making. So, you know, the, the, wow, that's, that it's everything, right? This industry focused on sustainability and climate and battle with climate change. It was, it was happening. It was going to happen whether, you know, Biden won or not. But with Biden's election and the $2 trillion kind of energy plan that he has and climate change battling plan he has, it's going to speed everything up. It's going to grease the wheels. It's going to make everything easier. It's, you know, California was an island. No more. You know, California paved the way. But it's now going to be the rest of the country paving the way for the rest of the world, I hope. And with, with I'm hoping, you know, I, I do, tech is kind of the tech folks that I'm connected to are all over the administration. And that is really exciting for me because, you know, the tech community combined with the policy folks is the winning combination. Neither should be left to their own devices. It needs to be a combination of those two to kind of pave the way for, for climate change. And, uh, and I'm excited about that. Really excited about it. Dear listener, dear listener, we were so excited to have Serial founder and climate investor Josh Felser, he joined us from San Francisco. Sir, there was so much more to talk about, your activism in mental health and the, 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 the many other uh, sea changes that have happened uh, during the pandemic in the past several years. I'd love for you to come back on and unpack these and many other things for me. So consider that an open invite, sir. Anytime. I love this conversation. I loved your book. And I'm really excited that we have this time here. Love it. Josh Felser. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. Enjoy full disclosure on Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. On NPR One and on Spotify, please subscribe early and often and rate us well. I'm Robin Farzad. Thanks for listening and back with you next week. Mm-hmm.